Welcome to Candid Catholic Convos, a program brought to you by the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg. Our mission is to humanize the church and help you to grow in your faith, love, and understanding. I'm your host, Rachel Trochet, a cradle Catholic who's only human and struggled with faith on more than one occasion. Each week, you'll hear engaging, down-to-earth interviews and actionable strategies you can implement into your life with ease to help you grow closer to God. If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. In the world of radio, it's rare you ever see the face behind the voice. And unless you follow us on social media, which you should, you wouldn't know very much about me or what I look like if I didn't tell you. Hi, I'm Rachel, a white woman with Italian, Irish, and Norwegian roots. My hair is brown, I'm average height, and lately I've been wearing my glasses a lot more, like I'm supposed to because my eyes are terrible. I met my husband in college in Philadelphia. He's a Puerto Rican man with dark hair and a rich complexion. Our three boys are beautiful. They're what a casting director would call racially ambiguous because they can pass for both Hispanic and Caucasian, as well as several other nationalities. I had never been exposed to Puerto Rican culture or style or music or anything before meeting my husband, and for the last decade, I've been absolutely immersed in it. It's vibrant, romantic, and flavorful, just like my heritage that I've embraced my entire life. I can't wait to shower my kids in theirs and show them all the things that make them uniquely them. But if I'm being honest, I know not everyone in this world will find them unique. I've witnessed firsthand how I am sometimes treated differently than my husband, and I wish I could say it was just because I'm a woman. I've sat at a restaurant with my in-laws who speak Spanish and watched others get up to move while glaring at us for taking up space. I've heard neighbors shout obscenities at my husband while he's mowing the lawn, only to salute him later when they see him in his military uniform. I've had strangers comment on my social media telling me my children were quasi-American and that they should go back to where they came from. And it breaks my heart. Year over year, the Hispanic population in central Pennsylvania grows, creating vibrant communities in York and Adams counties. And if you watch the news, they'll tell you this is a bad thing that the things that make us different are things to be feared. The reality is we're much more alike than we think. Today, I'm joined via Zoom by Father Michael Rotan, the Spanish Apostolate of Hanover, to talk about what makes his ministry unique and to share with us all the ways the Catholic faith can be made beautiful in different cultures. Father Rotan, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. So tell me a little bit about yourself and and how you kind of got into the priesthood. I grew up in South Central Pennsylvania, grew up in Strasburg, a small town in Lancaster County, and uh, Catholic school, 12 years, St. Anthony of Padua, which which is now a resurrection school, and then Lancaster Catholic, graduated in 1991. So I I pretty much knew um, or had a feeling at least all my life that I was being called to the priesthood. I was raised by the Redemptress there at St. Anthony's. And so that was my only real uh, image of a priest growing up. And and they were really um, important in that formation of all of us, actually. 
So I've been toying with it for a while. I ended up going on to college um, and after college teaching science and taught at a high school, taught at uh, an elementary school, middle school for two years. And then finally kind of said, listen, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it now. And I, I went in the seminary at the recommendation of a, um, a priest who had been with me all my life. And he said, you know, I, I know you, I know you've been doing this, you know, thinking about this for a long time. So just give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out or you hate it, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Just go on with your life. But if you love it, that's where you need to be. And so uh, I entered in, went to St. Vincent uh, Seminary in Latrobe. I was there for five years and then ordained a priest in 2004 for the Diocese of Harrisburg. That's really cool. That's quite the journey. So I understand that you are a Spanish apostolate. And I have no idea what that means. So could you kind of expand on that for me? What does it mean to be a Spanish apostolate? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what does that mean? It's a good question because um, when Bishop originally called me, I was at Bucknell for three and a half years before I had this assignment. Prior to Bucknell, I had been a Spanish pastor twice over. So when he called me and he said, I need you to go down to Hanover for the Spanish apostolate, that's what I asked. What is that? Like, what does that even mean? What is your vision here? And it took a while for both of us um, to articulate what is the vision. So basically what an apostolate is, um, whereas you have a parish that might be defined by a particular group of people that stay in the same area, they're connected to a patron, you know, St. Joseph, for instance, or what have you. The apostolate is more territorial. So it's, it's ministering to a specific community within a, a large territory. For example, ministering to the Latinos here in this area, we have St. Joseph, we have St. Vincent, Annunciation, we have Immaculate Heart. We have Sacred Heart in Kanawha. We have, you know, St. Francis Xavier, the next one over in Gettysburg, is a Spanish-English parish. Um, so we have a number of churches that operate within this large population that is linked by language and culture. So the apostolate is essentially taking care of their spiritual needs I mean, I, I, you know, for the novena, the nine days of prayer leading up to Guadalupe, the nine days of prayer leading up to Christmas, Las Posadas, um, I was as far as Spring Grove, you know, as far north as Spring Grove. I was in, you know, uh, Dover, near York. I was in Abbottstown, New Oxford, Littlestown. So all these areas surrounding, and those individuals are coming to St. Joseph for Mass. So the, the main thing with the apostolate is St. Joseph is not necessarily their parish. St. Joseph is the location where we celebrate Mass, and, and that's what draws everyone there. So the ultimate goal of any apostolate, I would think to a certain extent, especially dealing with the culture, is eventually where they are celebrating their sacraments will become um, a multilingual parish. And that's, you know, so for any of these churches um, around the diocese, many of them probably started as a Spanish apostolate. And then eventually they became, you know, kind of 
brought into the parish, incorporated into the parish community, and then it's a bilingual community. So that, I mean, ultimately, that's the goal here. Ultimately, um, this community will become a part of a parish. And so you have so many parishes that are bilingual, there's a certain distance between them. So the goal is to make it not overburdensome if they want to attend a mass in Spanish. Now, the argument often comes up, why don't they just learn English? And for, for many of, I mean, I can tell you learning Spanish, um, I was never formally trained in Spanish. If you have any question about this, ask the people I minister to. They'll tell you I wasn't trained because, you know, my Spanish is not polished by any stretch. Um, but there's something about, regardless of whether you know English or not, there's something about worshiping in your culture. It's a different type of worship um, to a certain extent. It's still Catholic and, and all the elements of the mass are there, but um, there are different elements that are specifically Hispanic or other cultural. So regardless, and we are the church. I mean, if you go back to the history of the Americas, uh, there were different models of catechesis or trying to get the native peoples to convert. And the most successful model uh, of the French Jesuits up in the Hurons was learning the Huron language first, and then they could catechize the people. As opposed to the Jesuits down in the Spanish community that kind of created mission towns and said, okay, you're going to learn our language and then we'll teach you the faith. I mean, it just, it was a disaster. So uh, among the Hispanic community, regardless of whether they're going to learn English in their job or in, you know, being in this country, there's always going to be a Spanish mass because that's home. That, that's, that's what they were brought up with. That's their culture. I want to piggyback off of something you said, because I found it very unique about how, yes, it's the mass and, you know, the the traditional roots are still there, but there's something inherently different about how Hispanic culture celebrates mass or like how Italian culture celebrates mass or the things that are involved with their faith. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I know you mentioned um, the Novena for Guadalupe. Um, and some of the other traditions that are a little bit more present than they are in other churches. Yeah, and and there is a difference. Uh, when I was pastor at the other church, uh, it was a mixture of, of Mexican, Puerto Rican, Guatemalan, Colombian. You had any number of, of mixed groups. You know, sometimes you just think they're Spanish and they're all the same. You know, and and there are many. Very you know, it's like saying a person is Asian. Well, there's many different types of people from the East. So, here in Hanover, it's to a large part Mexican, mm. which is very. I hate to say it, but it's very helpful because you're dealing with one culture for the most part. If you're in a church where I have been, and you have all these different Latino cultures, they each have their image of the Blessed Mother. They each have the way they celebrate certain feasts and stuff. And so sometimes, you know, it, it gets to be difficult, if not a, a bit of a conflict. But here, for instance, uh, um, many of our funerals occur at night, which doesn't seem practical, but it is because many of the people I minister to work. They work all day or they work the graveyard shift. And so an evening funeral is when everyone can be there and they want everyone to be there. They want the choir to be there. They want it to be, you know, um, 
our masses on Sunday are usually an hour and a half. And that's just a given. It's funny because in many um, communities that are non-Hispanic communities, um, typical of our diocese, sometimes people leave after communion. Now, they might come early, but they leave after communion. They're in a hurry to get out of there. Um, in the community here, we call it the loaves and the fishes. Like when I'm getting ready to go up for the entrance procession, the church is half empty. And I'm wondering where everyone is. By the time I get up to the front and we're doing the collect, everyone's there. It's full. So they trickle in late. And, and sometimes I give them a little bit of an issue about it. But they, they trickle in late. But there's no hurry to get out of there. So at Mass, so for instance, even this weekend at Mass, uh, we had a baptism during the Mass. We had a renewal of vows at the end for a couple that was celebrating 25 years. Then there was a presentation of a child that hasn't been baptized yet. They bring the child, you know, we hold up the baby, everyone claps, and there's a blessing and um, different things like that. And, and so you have these things and sometimes they're scheduled and sometimes they're not. Um, but it's the community coming together and everyone loves it. And then we do the birthday blessings, of course, and, and all these little extras. Um, if, if there is a death, they pray nine days after the death occurs in the person's home. If there is a feast day coming up, whether it's Christmas or Guadalupe or Three Kings Day, whatever it is, um, they have novenas in the homes. And even over Guadalupe, we had seven different prayer groups go out to a different home every night for nine days where people were gathered. You think about the number of people, the hundreds of people who were impacted. Um, we recently had a retreat, and it was actually their first parish retreat. And in speaking to them, I asked, what kind of retreat do you want? Because I give retreats, you know, we can do this. And they asked for a retreat where someone in each of the different groups of the church gives a testimony, a witness, which is very powerful about why they're Catholic, why they're involved in the church, why the Eucharist is important to them. And on the other side of that, at, at the same parish, you know, I talked to the pastor, we work very closely together and he said, well, we'll do a retreat too. So we had simultaneous retreats where we joined each other for lunch, we joined each other for a holy hour, confessions, and mass, which was beautiful. It was bilingual. But for his retreat that he gave, it was a standard retreat that, you know, I would give, where we give a couple of talks. They have time for quiet, and they have time for those things. So there's a difference right there that maybe within the non-Hispanic community, there is not that, um, you know, tendency to want to give a witness. Whereas... In the, the Latino community, they're used to that. They're used to giving a witness and, and expressing themselves in that way. That's beautiful. And I love what you said about the birthday blessing. It makes a lot of sense because when my husband and I got married, we got married in the Diocese of Philadelphia in this church called St. Patrick's in Norristown. Mm -hmm. And in Norristown, it is a very heavily Hispanic community. And when we pulled up to the church, there was a quinceanera just finishing up. Um, and like you said, they were in in no hurry to get out of the church. And I was, I didn't care. I was so full of love that day. I was like, they can stay, <laughs> tell them. And, and it was cute because right. our, my husband is Hispanic. 
What is what is his nationality? He's Puerto Rican. He's, he's Puerto Rican. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> but he's all he's a little bit of a um his complexion is darker for most mm -hmm. Puerto Ricans. And uh the family that was having the quinceanera, they were Mexican, and our photographer just knew that my husband was Hispanic. So they thought that the family that was there for the quinceanera was part of the wedding. Oh my god. <laughs> so we have pictures in I didn't put them in the album, but in our like digital files, there's pictures of random Mexican children um that they thought were there <laughs> for our wedding. So it's a great story. I love that. Uh -huh. story. <laughs> it is. And also that, you know, um the flexibility. So I I like to plan. I I don't like surprises and, and it it kind of puts me on edge when people say Hey, listen, I'll fake it till I make it, or we're going to wing it. I don't wing anything, but when things happen, they're not expected. I can be flexible. I think sometimes people have an idea of flexibility. It means I'm flexible. I just don't plan and hope it goes well. That's not flexible. That's just not planning. Right. But with, with what I found with this community too, for instance, I can't, it's rare that I can plan something directly after Sunday mass. Um, even this weekend we had a penance service and I kind of, you know, speeded things up again at the end of mass to make sure I got there because they also do all their business at that time. So on their way out of the church for better or for worse, I think it's a benefit, but, um, the, the Spanish community at St. Joe's, they pick up their hymnal as they walk into the church. And then when we're done with mass, they put the hymnal back on the shelf Whereas for the non-Hispanic community there, they just leave their hymnals in the pews and they're just always there. The benefit of it is they all have to put their hymnals back on the shelf, which means they all leave through one door, which means I get to see all of them. They all pass me and they all, uh, Padre, una pregunta, you know, I got a question or I, I need something or, and this is when I get all my appointments. A lot of my business happens after that Sunday mass because they're all there and the kids are all there. And so, um, I think that too, they're not in a hurry to leave. They'll hang out there forever, but also a flexibility. Um, and sometimes we have to reel that in a little bit. Um, you know, we might have kids every now and then who are wandering. And if they're wandering several times into the sanctuary, I mean, it could be dangerous. There's heavy candles and stuff, but it also becomes a distraction. And so just to be able to, to say to the, the parents, you know, privately, could you just keep an eye on them better? And people are very receptive to that. You know, they're, they, they don't want to, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I didn't mean that. And, um, but for the most part, um, it's, it's a familial, it's a familial community where, you know, it takes a village to raise a child sort of thing, which is very nice. So what kind of other challenges and rewards have you noticed with this type of ministry? I think some of the challenges is I live at one place. I live at one church. I, I have mass and the sacraments at another church, and then I'm working within the community at large. So it, it, it's kind of hard. Um, I don't really have a home base per se. Whereas if you're in the parish, you have a home base you know what facilities you have. And um, so to that extent, that can be challenging at times because we have to schedule around other things happening. So that's a, that's a challenge. 
it's a challenge um, as far as getting in touch with people because many are, of them are not registered and they won't register. So whereas some, you know, a secretary or even a pastor could look on a database, find out where someone lives and go to their house or call them, it's much more difficult uh, for me to do that. It usually happens through another person uh, and then to, um, you know, to, to get sacramental information sometimes is a challenge. I have to admit what I used to do is if I needed a baptismal certificate or something from Mexico or Puerto Rico or anywhere, I would, I would put a $10 bill in the envelope and it just helped the process. I hate to say it, but it helped the process and you get it back. Nowadays with everything electronic, email's a lot easier and people do sometimes respond, but I still, you know, it's, it's like pulling teeth sometimes to get some of those, those things that you need. Um, with respect to the intermixing of religion. So among the community here, you, you, I mean, you, you obviously have Catholicism and then you have other Christian religions. You have the Pentecostal, you have the evangelical, but then you also have Santoria, you have Santa Muerte, you have the Bruja, you know, the witchcraft and stuff like that. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to explain this to people and you might have to caution your, your audience if there are children present, but the way some of them look like this, look at this, is the way we look at Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. I mean, think about a Catholic saying, yes, and then we put, you know, these baskets out for this imaginary bunny to come. Well, that sounds like witchcraft to me. If I don't know anything about the, you know, or Santa Claus, this elf coming in um, and doing all these things, that sounds like some kind of other religion. So a lot of times they look at these things like that. Yes, I'm Catholic. But I also go to the natural healer when I need something. Or I also do, you know, offer a sacrifice to Santa Muerte just to make sure I cover all my bases and stuff. And so it, it, in educating them on some of those things, they've been receptive to it. Sometimes they'll say, we never knew this. We're happy that we know this now, although we don't like the consequences because now we can't do that stuff anymore. <laughs> And then those who don't want to hear it just won't hear it. So there is that. That is a challenge, certainly. And then the challenge that we all face, even within the church, uh, you mentioned the quinceañera. The quinceañera has become more, more about a party and less of about, you know, a rite of passage for a woman. If you're in a rancho in Mexico and that girl is 15, she'll be married in the next year or two. And she will stay in that rancho the rest of her life. She'll raise children. Um, the, the husband will work outside the rancho or whatever. That's all they're going to do. They're not going to go to higher education or anything else. So that makes sense, really. In the rancho, this is a rite of passage. She is going to be a woman. She's going to have responsibilities. And for a number of the, uh, the Mexicans that I deal with here, these kids are not nearly ready to be a mother or a parent or a responsible adult. And so, but it is about the party. And for the parents, it's about the tradition. And there's a mix there. Uh, I got pushback. I said, if they wanted a mass, the girl had to be confirmed. Because if she's going to be considered an adult in the church, she should have all of her sacraments of initiation. It just makes sense. And so for some parents, there was this mad scramble to get her confirmed. Just. 
so they could have the mass. And it doesn't make sense. So I said, well, we can still have a consignor prayer service, but I want them confirmed. It's funny because in Mexico, their policies are more strict than mine. Hmm. They, they require you go to so many masses a year. Like they, they have a pre-sign that you've been to this many masses and, and stuff. Um, so I don't feel so bad about that, but it is. And that's part of the cultural thing. You know, the struggle with the culture. Among the people here, they're probably where we were in the 1950s as far as our religion. We all went to church. There was not much happening on Sunday. So we had family day. We had a Sunday dinner or whatever. And, and that's where they are. I mean, the church is the center of their life. For many of the kids, the kids don't want to be that. They're kind of, they want to be more American. They want to be less Mexican or Hispanic. And um, so there is really a, uh, a struggle for parents and grandparents trying to hold on to the culture and trying to keep their children from being infected uh, by a secular culture. That is just, that is fascinating. And, and I can, I can absolutely see how some of those challenges would be difficult to work through, but it sounds like, it sounds like your um, community is fairly receptive, you know, whether or not they agree with all of it, they, they, it sounds like they're receptive. So I kind of want to address the elephant in the room of racism, especially when it comes to our brothers and sisters who look different than us. Like I said, my husband is Hispanic. He's from Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And he's told me that unless he's wearing his military attire, um, he feels very out of place in central Pennsylvania. He's originally from northern New Jersey, which is also very heavily Hispanic, because a lot of the people around here don't look like him or sound like him. And I was taught racism goes against everything I know as a Catholic. You know, all human beings are made in God's image and likeness. But unfortunately, in this day and age, not everyone is aware of that, nor does it alleviate my husband's or my neighbor's feelings of being uncomfortable or, or of alienation or discrimination. So my question is kind of twofold. Is this something that you encounter in your ministry of addressing that outsider feeling? And how can those of us who haven't experienced that feeling of alienation walk with those who do? Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I think words are important and defining words. I mean, you know, if you control the the narrative, you can control people. I think we've seen that in more ways than one. With respect to racism, you know, believing that someone is less than I am because of who they are, I, I mean, I think that's racism as a whole, which is ridiculous. My uncle, so my, my family's from the South. And I remember my uncle trying to convince me when I was little that a black man could have as many degrees as he wants, but that he would always be smarter than that black man because he wasn't black, which is ridiculous. Yeah, but this is the mentality, you know, that they were thinking of. So I found it interesting. Um, during the pandemic, I was up at Bucknell at this time. No one had a congregation because the churches were closed. So every Saturday night, the local priests and I would have dinner at the Newman house because there was no one there. And it, it turned out to be something that even after, you know, we came back and they got their congregations back, we continued to do it. It was, very, it was a, a great time. And what was very, you know, 
so wonderful about it is you had uh, me, you had a retired uh, Navy chaplain priest, you had another priest who went to school in Philadelphia and actually worked there for a few years. Then you had two priests that were from Africa, um, missionary priests. And just talking about what was going on, you know, the the George Floyd protests were going on at that time, Black Lives Matter and the, the stuff that followed that. And um, it was amazing how we could look at it rationally and say, okay, I can look at this and say, this is objectively wrong. It doesn't matter what color I am. And I can look at this and say, this is objectively right. It doesn't matter what color I am, where I come from. And that's, you know, the truth is written in our hearts. And I think that's part of it. So um, among the people here, I think there is some misunderstanding. And I don't know exactly how to address that all the time. Some people, it's not going to matter. They'll be just like my uncle was. You can't convince them. I mean, you're wasting breath. In this last few few days, a tragic thing happened, you know, down on the border with that family. That was, I think now they found the bodies. I haven't been keeping up with it, but they, they did recover them. And what I try to impress upon people is this is what many of my, the people in my congregation experienced every day. So there's sometimes this argument that people are jumping the border to take our jobs. And there's no question among my Mexican people, if, if they have some faults, one of their faults is they're workaholics. They're not lazy at all. They work all the time. But there has been very few places around here that I have seen that do not have help wanted signs up. So yes, they, they take the jobs up here. Sadly, they're paid pennies on the dollar in many cases um, because they have no protection. They're not legal or what have you. But I, I think we have this mentality sometimes that they're jumping the border because they, they want our jobs and this and that. If you, if you saw what happened to that border with those Americans who crossed over, and this is a big deal now because they were Americans, this happens every day to Mexicans. And if you had children in this condition who are growing up in this every day, what would you be willing to do? to keep them safe. And so it might surprise people to know too that, you know, the people within my community, certainly and others, they want border security. They want it because they came up here for that. So they left, they left the cartels and drugs behind so they could raise their children in peace and safety. And many of them are disappointed to see that there's not peace and safety here anymore. You know, we have crime in the streets, we have looting and all this other stuff. They left because of the drugs and, and stuff like that. And of course, now we see drugs flowing in. So sadly that they left because they wanted to give their child, children a good education, which they couldn't get in the country. And, uh, and now they see some of the things that are, their kids are being taught in public schools. And they're, you know, wondering whether they made the right choice or not. I mean, the, the point is that they're coming to this community um, over the years, I've had a number of individuals who were Mexican who um, tried to become legal or they did become legal, um, you know, to over $10,000 a piece. It costs a lot of money. The system's broken. It is. And, um, but they also don't want an open door where anyone can just come in. 
So what I try to impress upon the people that I meet is the people in this community are people you want to be in this country because they make it better. The others, you know, there, there's going to be nefarious persons involved in whatever. Whenever you find something good that's happening, there's also a possibility. So what I run into is some people will look at that Mexican congregation and see them as border jumpers, as lawbreakers, as drug bringers, as job takers. And if they would really, you know, take the time to get to know them, uh, they would experience, and that's not everybody. I'm not going to paint with a broad brush and say they're all perfect, but to see people who are really humble, who are not entitled at all, not in, I mean, that's, I think that's the difference too with an apostolate, you know, even talking about the church, words are important. I study words for a living. That's what I do. Just not Spanish words, unfortunately. But anyway, um, when you look at what they'll say, if someone wants to use space in the church or the, the physical plant, that they would say, is this available? When the people in my congregation want to use a room or something else, they'll say, can I use this? In other words, I'm asking permission to use something. I'm not entitled to it. It's not mine. Um, and I think that's the difference, too, with an apostolate rather than a parish. When, once you're in a parish, you know, you have that investment. But they're very humble, hardworking, you know, trying to live the faith the best they can. They have their share of problems. There's no question about it. Uh, they have cultural things that they bring with them, which is not unlike immigrants from, you know, the beginning of the last century, too. Uh, but um, I, I think if I dealt with racism in any ways, it would be through that lens that it, it's not even based on their color. It's based on a perception that they're invading our country and they're taking what belongs to us when in reality we can't get people to work anyway. So, you know, there's this balance there. What's interesting too is when they, when they come to our country, they go to a population that's already established. So they will mix in. And so, you know, the people there are usually comfortable too. When I was in Lebanon, we, we had almost as many Puerto Ricans as we did Mexicans there in the congregations. And even there, there was a little bit of a friction sometimes because Puerto Ricans are citizens. And that's different, you know, and, and there were more opportunities because they were citizens, they could be defended if their work ethics weren't right or whatever else. But uh, in those communities, I don't know if you, I don't, I didn't watch the, the, the thing from Chris Rock, who's a comedian, I don't know if you know him or not, but he responded yeah. to the slap her around the world, whatever. Yes, but I some, didn't see that. <laughs> okay, I didn't see that, but I, I saw one thing he said, and I can, I can totally see it. He said, he was talking about when you have a couple with a, a, a black man or a black woman with a white man or a white woman. And he said, it's so interesting when they take them to the house to meet the parents the first time. Because he said, if you are going to the white person's house, that they they scramble around to make you feel welcome. And they're, they're, they're almost nervous about it in a way that, um, and I think they do it good heartedly, but I think also there's this thing, I don't want to come off as racist. 
So I'm going to be as, as careful as I can. Whereas he said, if you go over to the black person's parents' house, they're just like, impress me. Like a dad would be, okay, you're taking my daughter. You better impress me. You know, they're not going out of their way or anything. It, it's more normalized. It's regular. And I'd say that among, you know, the people here too, um, if there is a two, if there are two people dating and one of them is Mexican or, or Hispanic and the other one is not, that when they go to visit the parents of the non-Hispanic, there, there is a nervousness and a, they, they want them to feel accepted and everything else. It's, it's not the normal situation. Whereas if they go to the Mexican's house and the dad is there, it's just no holds barred. It's like, sit down and you respect the father and you, you, you know, it's all that stuff. So um, I've learned a lot in that way culturally as well. It's hard, again, going back to where I was, it's hard when you have so many different cultures that all speak Spanish to get a handle on any one. When I have a, a majority of one here, you can learn a lot more about that individual culture because you have the time and you have the different, um, you know, engagements and, and opportunities that way. Yeah, I I 100% agree, um, especially being in an interracial relationship, which was, it was so funny because when we first got together, like it didn't strike me that we were different until we were walking on the street and somebody said something. Mm. And then it was like, oh, wait a second. In some areas, this is, this is not normal. When to, to us, it's, it's love. Like we've, God mm -hmm. gave me this other person and this is, mm -hmm. this is what he intended for us. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what color he is. So it, it's, it's just wild because I feel like as a white woman, I'm, it's not lost on me the privilege that I experienced because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. um, yes, being a woman, there have been instances of discrimination, but not to the extent of if I were a Hispanic woman or if I were a black woman or in general. And I wouldn't say I've made it my mission, but I it's been on my heart to kind of walk, especially with my husband being in an area where he feels regularly uncomfortable, to walk in a way that doesn't try to explain away what he's feeling or what anybody else could be feeling. What advice would you have for someone who's not part of the Mexican or Hispanic community who wants to just acknowledge that what they're going through is different than what somebody else might be going through? Yeah. And I, and I don't know whether to attribute it. I mean, not, you know, not being in a, a biracial couple myself. So I can't speak from firsthand experience, but I think that over the last few years, the climate has been such that it has um, sharpened the knife, so to speak, as far as the divisiveness. And that there might've been people who um, never really even thought about it before. And now it's put front and center on them. Um, within the community, it's it's interesting how there are individuals who will say we should do more with the Spanish community, or we want to do more with the Spanish community, and um, and and very sincerely, um, and and really want to understand that. At this particular retreat, when we had lunch together, I made sure to find some of the individuals I deal with who are bi bilingual, and kind of made sure they were with 
the English group so they wouldn't feel like they're because among the English speakers, there's always that fear. Uh, I don't know what they're saying. I'm not going to know what they're saying. I'm not going to be able to talk back to them. Yeah, well, welcome to my world. I mean, you know, so there is that fear, but they're always very um, edifying. They give you such credit for trying and they're not going to, you know, shame you or anything else like that. They don't think you're trying to to do anything, um, you know, sneaky or make them look bad or whatever they, they they have the benefit of the doubt there so we've just i slowly i've slowly been trying to encourage more and more kind of joint ventures um the language issue is always there and part of the issue too and i, I don't want to say this in an effort to you know maybe um embarrass anyone but many uh, of the people many I'd say at least some of the people I deal with can't even, they can't read. So they can't even read Spanish, mm. which means if you're going to a bilingual mass and they will say, okay, well, we'll put the, the reading in Spanish when it's spoken in English, they can't read it. So that doesn't help anyone uh, unless it's kind of repeated. And this is something I came to know more and more being here because throughout RCIA, throughout classes and stuff, you know, if when you have a bunch of people gathered together, you might say, okay, would you like to read? Would you like to read? And there's certain people, they don't even look up at you. And it was only later that I found out, oh, they can't read. Mm. So you can't just, you know, normally if we were in a group uh, in the church, we'd say, okay, who wants to read? Or say, okay, let's just pass it around. Everyone read a sentence. You can't say that. There has to be that sensitivity. And even when we do these novenas at different people's houses, and there are parts of the novena to read, I'm always very sensitive, um, you know, in talking to the leaders and saying, please make sure that person can read before you hand them the paper and they stumble through it. Because I've, I've been there on some occasions where it's obvious they can't read. They're kind of sounding it out or, or doing what they can. And the person next to them is whispering in their ear what the word is. And it's just, it's uncomfortable it, and it, it doesn't help anyone. So, yeah, I, I think getting more of these activities together and just realizing it's going to take a little longer if you're doing something bilingual. What I've done when I do uh, 40 hours of retreats that are bilingual, and I know I'm going to preach twice. I always preach in English and Spanish every week anyway. Because a lot of the kids don't know Spanish as well as they know English. Um, I will say to the Spanish people, actually, it's usually the English first because Spanish takes more energy. I'll say, I'm going to preach here for 15 minutes in Spanish. While I'm doing that, you pray the rosary to yourself. And then by the time you're done praying the rosary, I'll be done with what I'm doing here. And then I'll start in English. And then the Spanish can pray the rosary to themselves and stuff. So there are ways to to kind of work through that. But um, as much as people sometimes say we want to bring the cultures together, we want to have shared activities, There, the, the subtext to that would be we want to have shared activities as long as it doesn't make mass any longer or as long as I don't have to speak any other language or hear any other music or, you know, but yeah, we want these activities to happen. We just don't want it to change anything we're doing now, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's a constant challenge. I just hope, um, like I said, when when 
we priests sat around that table. You couldn't tell who was black or who was white. We were just talking about the faith. We were talking about things happening in the world at that time. And, and just speaking, you know, in a rational way, if you're doing this, this is wrong. It's just wrong. You just you use whatever word you want to to justify it. You can control the language, but it's still wrong. And this is right. If you're living your life in this way, no matter what they say about you, this is right. And it just seems so simple, but we get caught up in all the, the virtue signaling. We get caught up in all the canceling and all the other stuff that goes with that. And everyone's so afraid. It'd just be so easy if we could just get past that and realize I'm no better than you and I'm no worse than you either. God loves us all equally because otherwise he wouldn't have created us. That's the point. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes so much sense. And it's kind of just want to throw your hands up in the air. Like this is so easy. Why can't we all, why can't we get this? Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back to another elephant in the room that we talked about earlier. And that's um, the topic of immigration. And I understand that there are a, a lot of migrants who might be in the area on work visas. I read in the catechism chapter 22, verse 41, that prosperous nations are obliged to the extent that they are able to welcome the foreigner in search of opportunity and asylum that cannot get it in their country of origin. And like I said, I, I, I understand, and I could be completely wrong because I'm not from Hanover, that there are workers who are um, transient or migrant or um, just they don't stay in one place for, for very long. You know, maybe they work in the fruit industry, they honor the work visa, and then they go home. But again, through the lens of what we consume, this isn't always portrayed as the case, which may stir resentment in other members of the community. Politics aside, because politics is just too convoluted, what does having a migrant population do to help our industry and the body of Christ while they're here? And why is it important? You know, if, if, if we were still living in Eden, so to speak, and everybody had good intentions, uh, we wouldn't even be having this conversation because many of these individuals who come up here illegally or illegally or with a visa or whatever, they have agrarian experience. They're farmers. They grew up around livestock. They grew up, you know, and, and I'm not saying everyone's in a rancho, but many of them are, many of them. So down here in Hanover, we have horses for the, the trot races, I guess. We have the orchards in Adams County. We have a turkey plant in New Oxford. We have Utz snack foods. We have, so whenever we're, you have these big factories and, and places that have farming opportunities. That's where, you know, you, you'll have this population because first of all, it's what they know and uh, there's a need for it. So with respect to immigration, I, I mean, I agree with the catechism, obviously for the number of people I've seen who are in situations where their children are mortally in danger of being trafficked or, you know, any number of other things, absolutely, we should definitely give them safe, you know, safe passage and everything else. The, the problem is the immigration system's broken and we do have to, to figure out who we can let in as far, I mean, we don't want to let terrorists in. We don't want to let the cartels right. in. Right. You know, 
they came up here to escape the cartels and now we have the cartels up here you know so it, it, it didn't do any good for anything so i would say it one of the things that is unfortunate here is that they are they are very hard workers they have a good work ethic but because some of them don't have visas or they have a certain type of visa i would question what is a, a fair wage or a living wage because many of them will work and they work well but they have no recourse if they're overworked or if they're underpaid or or whatever else so that is a struggle that i have which is which is why i'm much more flexible too with stuff um if someone needs help if someone needs financial help if someone can't get to mass on sundays because they're working and they work graveyard shift or they you know whatever else um so that has really shaped how I do ministry a lot differently. I'm more in people's homes and that's house blessings. It's visiting. Uh, when someone is sick or dying, they usually don't take them to the hospital. You know, they'll die at home just like we did back at the beginning of the last century, you know, and, and there's people gathered around and I'll have masks at their bedside and, and that's what we do. Um, um, so th there's times when people will maybe not be as faithful as we'd like, or they can't commit to being on something or they, they might've said they'll be there and then they can't show up because something happens or, um, and there are people, everyone's doing something on the side. Like I, I may have a, a job at the snack factory, but I also clean someone's house on the weekend so that I can do what it takes to make ends meet because they are living more or less what they think safe for their children. And, um, they do have opportunities. Many, it's funny with a, a couple of them here, I visited their homes and they have these giant homes, like beautiful homes. And when you talk to them, um, and find out how did you do this? Many of them, found a, an old dilapidated home that no one wanted to buy. And so they bought it dirt cheap. And then every year they would work on a room and they just kept fixing it up. And, and they might've no, known someone who was a bricklayer. And so, okay, if, if you lay some bricks, then uh, I, I work with trees. I'll, I'll get you some trees. We can plant trees at your, you know, it's this bartering system. And so I, you know, I go to their home and I'm like, how did you get such a nice place? And they work, but that's what they did. They took, you know, the, the stone rejected by the builders and then they, they made it their own. They did what they had to do. So uh, I think it is different. I mean, you know, being, I've been in, I was pastor at Hershey for three years. I was pastor St. Mary's in Lebanon. So I've had non-Spanish communities where you could predict things, you could make meetings, you could, you know, it's very easy to do that in many cases, but this community necessitates much more flexibility. That's really cool. It kind of reminds me of my husband's grandmother still has a house in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And when they bought, like, I think they bought the land and then like year after year, they would 
continue to build so that by the time my husband had graduated high school it was like a four-bedroom house and like Mm -hmm. even some of the houses you see like there's no two houses that look alike in right Puerto Rico and I just think that that and it's a lot of like when I was in film school we used to say it's not what you know it's who you know and I feel Mm -hmm. like in the Hispanic community there's a lot of that it's like oh I know a guy I know somebody who can do this my cousin does this and it's it's really cool to have and again, going back to the body of Christ, like, you know, not every hand is going to be able to do the job that a foot can or right. you know, things like right. that. So that's that's really cool. What would you like our listeners to know about your ministry? And and if if there is an opportunity, how can someone get involved? Well, um, we have a number of people now who come to the Spanish Mass just because. They want to experience something different. They may may or may not understand it. That's always something I would encourage. In fact, I was on vacation recently with a buddy of mine who's a priest in Ohio. And we're sitting in the lobby of this hotel. And of course, we're priests. So we bring a mask kit. We celebrate in our room. And these six people, these three couples came in and they were talking to the concierge. And they said, where can we go to Catholic Mass? And this, this was in Mexico. And, you know, we're sitting there talking, oh, should we invite them to mass on Sunday? Should we do this? And I said, no, you know, I think it's good that they go out in the town and go to mass because then they get experience in Mexican mass, you know, in Mexico or, or even in San Juan, like if I were in San Juan, Puerto Rico, I'd say that's, you know, go into the, the local town, see what they do. I know um, friends of mine went to the, the Virgin Islands and the priest actually asked who was visiting and had them stand up and everybody prayed over them. You know, it's just a beautiful thing, which you wouldn't get if you're celebrating mass with two priests in a hotel room. So I would encourage people, you know, there are enough uh, Spanish English parishes in the diocese that you could go to one and just see, you know, how it is, how they worship. You'll understand the mass. You can take a missile with you. You can follow along the readings and and do it, you know, whatever else. I would also say if, you know, if you encounter someone in church or a church activity, whether it's a festival or a fish fry or something else, and, um, you know, you got to read body language. But a lot of individuals, if, if they're Hispanic and you approach them and they smile or they look up, they would probably welcome you sitting down and, and at least trying to have a conversation. If they keep their head down or whatever, then just keep moving on. You know, it's you know the body language but um just look for those encounters because it's always been i mean i and i'm a priest too but it's always been an enriching experience for me uh, it's amazing the people you encounter and the stories they have to tell um i i, I preached about this a little this morning about discomfort you know, you know sometimes when we go on a pilgrimage or a retreat in the catholic church and we're so upset because our pillow was uncomfortable. And you think about, you know, Perpetua and Felicity, who are the martyrs we celebrate today. I know in their jail cell, they didn't complain that it was uncomfortable. So um, realizing that, yes, we went downstairs and we got a hot shower this morning. But if, if you're in Mexico, you want to wait till the end of the day because the black barrel on the roof will have heated the water, you know, as opposed to the cold shower you're going to get the next day and things you just take for granted. So um, it, it's, it can only be better for a person 
if they experience another culture, it can only broaden their perspective. And, you know, they don't have to accept everything that that, that other culture is about, but it, it just enriches us all somehow. I love that. I love the idea of growth. Growth doesn't necessarily come from a, a comfortable place. So you might feel uncomfortable in the moment of, you know, initially, especially if you're an introvert, initially breaking the ice, but the amount of spiritual wealth that you could take away from that is just, you can't really compare. So I really appreciate that point of view. So Father Rotan, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you have an awesome rest of your day. And I'd speak some Spanish to you, but I'm just like you. I've been married for 12 years to a Hispanic man. Can't speak a lick of Spanish because I took too much French in high school. But <laughs> I hope you have a great rest of your day. I do as well. Muchas gracias y Dios te bendiga. Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org slash D-A-C and clicking the make a donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.